is why we love racing in all its forms. That's King of Swing fighting though. He's a superstar, a champion pacer. Untapped holding on. What a win. Untapped from the RSN Sandown Cup. But Gold Trip is brave. A hundred to go. A leap and a half emissary. Gold Trip is going to win the Lexus Melbourne Cup. For the next hour, RSN is cracking the codes. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cracking the Code on the last day of 2022. And what a hot day it's going to be in Melbourne today and tonight as well. We've got great racing wherever we look at uh, and with the harness racing tonight with 12 Group 1s at uh, Melton. Matt Stewart, good morning to you. I'm just checking the temperature estimation. Currently 23, going to be 31 at about 4pm. And I'm thinking of the people... On the lawn at Tabcourt Park, Melton tonight from about 7pm onwards, it's going to be about 28 and beautiful. Woolamai is going to be a little bit warmer than that under the big oak trees. And wherever the big greyhound racing is tomorrow, it's going to be board shorts and thongs as well. Most likely it will. Good morning. Yeah, good morning to you. You'll be at Melton tonight as well. Tell us the capacity that you're uh, working in at Melton. Uh, So I'll be in the swabbing bay tonight. So... (laughs) For anyone who's wondering, yeah, that basically, requires explanation. Getting, it sounds very medical. To it's, me. um, so you're working alongside the vets. There's a few of us at Swab, and it's basically every winner um, after the race, you have to go down to the trainer and just wait until they ungear the horse and go and wash it down and come back, and basically got to get the horse to pee into a ladle, and then do you whistle? Yes. What do you, you whistle? What, on. Do you, what do you whistle? <laughs> oh, not a, I don't know. Not a good whistler, just anything. But most of those horses that are racing at Melton, you know, week in, week out, they're professionals and they know as soon as they go into that straw, into that swabbing bay, that that's us, what they're there for. Give us the whistle that you use. Oh, I don't know. Just make it up. Like no, a... I can't sing. I can't <laughs> whistle either. Right. So it's I not can't. a song. Now I'm laughing. If you can't, if you're dry mouthed on the evening and can't muster up a whistle, does that mean the horse doesn't get swabbed? <laughs> no. It's, it's pretty good. The horses are good. They know when they walk in there what they're, task is at hand and then you collect the sample and you've got to do all the paperwork and put the sample into the vials and it goes off to the race Why does whistling make horses wee? I think it's just something that's probably been done for years and years and years and when the horses are taught that when they wee, someone whistles. It's a really easy thing to do. When, when I just whistled then, Dan shot out of the studio and went to the gents. Did that trigger something? <laughs> it, it can, but it wasn't the old, uh, whether it was an old wives' tale or not, but you, they'd, a sleeping person, if you put their hand into a, a, yes, a bucket of we water. Used to do it at boarding school, they, yeah. So do you put, yeah. if a, a horse won't, when you whistle, doesn't encourage it, do you put its foot into a bucket of water? <laughs> I haven't got to that point yet. Or do you give it eight pots? That usually works. Anyway, we oh, digress. Goodness. Getting so, up, we always digress on this show, so don't we, guys? Eight to Mini nine. Valley, just before, yes. I was going to say, which used to be the home of harness racing, before we get to uh, Melton, I just thought about the Valley and how many more uh, Saturday uh, meetings there are. Um, and there can only be you know, a handful or so before the valley as we know it ceases to exist and mm. really it's going to be a new track so for people to go out and enjoy uh, the valley because it's not going to be around forever it's funny i was talking to mark hunter about it who's a very hard-nosed punter and not not renowned for his sentiment you'd have to say mark he's a great guy and all that but he's not the most sentimental bloke in the world and he and i were talking about it on racing pulse yesterday and yeah, he did reflect for a moment on the Bonecrusher Waverley Star at the school, that sort of stuff, and the geography of the Cox Plate circuit. And he kind of said, gee, it's hard to imagine it pointing in the other direction, the whole yeah. track, and uh, losing that iconic 2040 circuit, for instance, and the 
you know, the sprint circuit and all that sort of stuff as well. So I've got, I've got to say I've got mixed feelings about it because I don't know what to expect, but I know what we have. So, um, yeah, I, I, I keep forgetting what the timeline is, but I think this time next year, I think, uh, we're going to be getting some pretty serious action happening there. So, and the building is already, the Happy Valley type stuff's already happening around it. Yeah. So, oh, it's obvious, it is, isn't it? From as out, it is at Caulfield. So. Out the front there. And mm. a lot of the things that you would have grown up with, uh, cease to exist now. So you notice the difference, but when you walk into the grandstand, that exists at the moment. Uh, you remember it as Mooney Valley for me as a kid growing up there from only a few suburbs away. It's, it's no different, but, uh, the surrounds and aesthetically from the back outside the grandstand, it is quite different. Well, and I think this is, I'm not saying there's a risk, but I, I think what happens with anything like this is there's a novelty era at the start where everyone's wow how exciting we're walking through these gates for the first time but then you get to the stage where that wears off and then it has to but then be a proper replica for what you've had and it may well do that it may be absolutely spectacular but uh uh you know back in the 20 years ago when we were sitting there and uh they were running pro chevalier was running there in popular arm as well so it's gone to melton uh sort of there's probably pluses and minuses i'd say olympic park Back in the day yeah. on a Monday yeah. night? Yeah, that's right. And they used to have the running races in between the yeah. Greyhound races because the running track. Could you? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. I, I didn't, wasn't aware of that. And the Richmond Football Club used to train on the oval next door and you'd be walking your dogs around the outskirts and, um, the guys would be training. Not that I was particularly interested in that, but oh, sure. it's, no, I was, I'm not into, into football, you know that. So. The football socks things, would add your face on it. Uh, oh, explain so that. Simone is a gift giver, and Dan and I aren't, and we feel guilty every because we every Christmas we forget that Simone lavishes us with fudge and things like that. <laughs> but she double gifted this year. She rolled up the next day with socks that had her face all over them. So if you don't like them, well, you won't have to look at. If you don't like me, you won't have to look at them, will you? You'll have them on your feet and shoes covering them. But I just thought it, it was, was a, a, a fun bizarre thing gift. To do. But then again, you you did stuff one of your ex pets and it sits by a that's, piano with marble eyes. That, so. That's right. Well, we better get into today's show, guys, because it's a, a big show and um, a, a show on reflections. We've had some outstanding guests over the course of the year, like we always do, and. Very varied guests. We have obviously club administrators. We've had, um, Sharon Chapman, the amazing photographer, talking about her experience at the Birdville races. Greg Miles came on. Like to have someone like Greg Miles on the show, he's just, um, so wonderful in his recollection of big races. We've had so many guests and I've got a list here. I just can't go through them all, but, um, I've picked out a few today that, uh, different for different reasons some yeah theme about horses people and their experiences so it was yeah hard going through some of these and trying to pick did you add the number up of of all the guests i didn't because i'm sure that there's probably a few that i've um missed somewhere um but there's like if you think of an average of two at least two a week that's 100 and many weeks we've had three so you're probably looking at around between 120, 130 guests. Some of them have this been, year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. some of them have been people that we've had on in previous years that we've just loved and wanted to hear the other side of the story. But there was one thing this year though, Matt. Um, I know you're always pretty ready to put it out there, put an opinion out there and things like that. But let's just take a listen from one interview during the year where you made a prediction. The prize money now, which is going to turn Wow She's Fast into a $2 million earner within the next six months. 
Well, oh, oh what happened with Welsh is fast? Did she then? then she, I, I just checked. She's now. Well, I think the timeline. It was actually in... seven months later. So I think you missed the timeline. I'm only kidding. No, it that was, was back in August. It was a smart prediction. Yeah, that was, it was, and it wasn't until I was listening to some of these interviews back, and I thought, my goodness, that actually, I yeah. Yeah. I, I, the reason why it was always on my mind is because I remember going to Jason Thompson's kennels one day, and I can't remember what the greyhound was, but it was the closest at the time. To, to getting towards the impossible, and that was to earn a million dollars. And that greyhound at that time, and it wasn't his greatest ever greyhound. He said that to me. He said, "Look, this is this is a nice dog, but it's not a cha- it's not a super champion. But it had earned eight hundred grand because it had won the right races." And he and I were saying, "It's almost like you know the the old movie where the the guy's buried up to his head in the desert, and the glass of water's just out of reach, and he just can't get it." That was the million dollars <laughs> for greyhounds. It just it was unattainable. Yeah. They were getting close. Then all of a sudden. That greyhound actually did earn a million dollars, and then another, then another. Um, Fernando Bale, I think, swept through it. Fernando Bale, yeah. Fernando Bale, yep. and then and then you started thinking two million, yeah, uh, and it, that that was just ludicrous uh, uh, to think about that. And then in a, in I reckon in the space of six or seven years, and this is albeit with an era of disruption as well. So don't forget, between me visiting Jason Thompson and wondering if there'd be a million dollar earner. We had the sport temporarily wiped out in New South Wales. We had the threat to it in Victoria. We had argy-bargy, there's no doubt, that occurred with the, the participants and prize money complaints and things like that. And then all of a sudden, the injection of COVID-related prize money, uh, sorry, wagering and then prize money, and now we have this unbelievable era of prosperity Never in Greyhound been Racing. Where mm. you've got, how many have we got? About seven or eight who have earned a million now? Uh, something like that, yeah. Now we've got two, Wow, She's Fast and She's a Pearl with two million. And the reason why I think it's significant, because cost of owning is always pressing, you know, interest rates are up and all that sort of thing. Uh, the affordability and the and the dream of, of a Greyhound changing your life is now very real. Um, as yeah. you know, Simone, the training fees are split between the it's a 50-50 deal with the trainer. You don't you don't get those horrible bills uh, when you least expect them and so on. So I think um, Greyhound Racing is, in a marketing sense, is is just there. It's right there now and it's you don't even have to do anything. It's just there. The cells are there. So yeah. massive. Certainly a great era. But um, we better get into some of these interviews, guys. And probably my most favourite interview of the year, so I've put it on first, was that with Joan Walker, who was the owner of Reckless, the racehorse. And she was absolutely delightful, um, straight shooter. Gee, wouldn't you have loved to have spent some time with her over her years? She doesn't miss a race meeting. I think she only missed them when she had her children when they were born. But um, she will still front up to the races week in, week out. So let's take a listen to Joan Walker and um, her thoughts or recollections about breeding Reckless. When this great horse, and still to this day, Reckless would have to be one of the most popular uh, horses that that has uh, raced, there's no doubt about it. I was a little kid, and he he had a little bit to do with the start of my career. Um, but it took a long time to win a race. Um, what was it, 34th start before he won his maiden? I'm, I'm afraid what I did is I never kept count because you people all kept count. You told me <laughs> regularly how many races I'd run and how many I had not won. So I simply I don't bother to keep count, but it was a lot. But the, but the difference was he ran a lot of placings and he had actually, in those days, had won as much money as a lot of horses actually ever won. Joan, let's, let's start 
let's go to the replay of the Sydney Cup, and then we can talk about the legendary quest to win every uh, major city cup in Australia and the legend that surrounded him as he built towards the Melbourne Cup. But this is reckless winning the Sydney Cup. Raced immediately to the lead, being tackled immediately on the outside by Tara's Regent. Balmarino is waiting for a run between them, and they were followed by Popular Demand and Reckless. Golden Black led coming to the 200. Balmarino is being asked the big question now, but Golden Black's holding him. The Balmarino can't win. Reckless is the danger to Golden Black. Reckless tackling Golden Black. He's off the track, Reckless, but he's headed Golden Black, and Reckless comes away to win by a length to Golden Black. Third, Dimitri. Now, he did win every major city cup, I think, bar Darwin or or Tassie. Uh, tell us about the sequence, Jonah, and where was that in the sequence and how big was this story becoming at the time with Reckless? Well, it started really at that point, Matt, with him winning the Sydney Cup because he'd run in the Melbourne Cup previously with, I might add, I think it was um, 43 or 44 kilos. He won the Hotham Handicap to get into the Melbourne Cup and I entered him in the Melbourne Cup because Tommy never would believe the horse could stay because he'd trained Reckless's mum, Impulsive, and she broke the record at her first start at Caulfield. And that whole family, in his um, view, was a sprinting family because she'd come out of, a, out of Spitfire who won the Oakley Plate. So Tommy just would quietly, but he just would not have he could stay, but I'd bred him for that purpose and I knew he could. But that's, that's another long story, which neither of us have time for. <laughs> However, uh, he did run in the Caulfield Cup that year. And, of course, that was the year they nearly abandoned the Caulfield Cup when we had that torrential downpour before the race. He won the Hotham Handicap on the Saturday, got into the Melbourne Cup, and I, of course, couldn't sleep because I'd bred him for this one purpose. And finally Tommy had given in when we ripped when we entered him in the Melbourne Cup ourselves and trained him for the race. Uh, down came the rain, Saturday, Sunday. So I said, I can remember sitting up in bed on Tuesday morning with tears in the eyes, and my husband turned round to me and said, look, it's wet outside, do we have to have it wet inside as well? <laughs> 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 he was a wonderful support, but he could always find a way to make things a little easier. Because I knew the horse couldn't go a yard in the wet. And there we were with this amazing lightweight. In fact, he'd had to get Peter Clark to ride him on the Saturday in the Hotham Handicap. And as he legged Peter up, he'd said to him, because uh, he was an apprentice, he said, Peter, you win this, you've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup. Well, Peter nearly went over the other side of the saddle. But <laughs> however, he did win the Hotham Handicap. Peter rode him in the Melbourne Cup. But the rain came. And Tommy and I sat in the pouring rain, drenched to the skin, watching the race and watching him just going up and down and up and down. But during that race was the time I realised that this horse was beyond just a good horse. He had the courage. It was unbelievable to watch him because he just could not go in the yard over the wet, but he just never, ever stopped trying. At one stage, he was running a third. <laughs> Two of us, and we both said as the race started, oh, well, he'll run last, but there we are. So, but right at, towards the end of the race, coming in, uh, coming up the straight, approaching the winning post, Kythera, who was a New Zealand mare, obviously bred in the mud, like Vanderhump, and she went sailing past him and got third place, but he did run fourth. 
which to Tommy and I was a most unbelievable success for the horse. So from that moment on, we were definitely committed to the two-mile races. And he was then immediately, that night, was set for the Sydney Cup. And that's how that started. So uh, when the Sydney Cup came round, and Pat Trotter had done all, his, all the riding on Reckless and looked after him beautifully all through. When the Sydney Cup came, all, we all went up to Melbourne, to Sydney, of course, because I went to Sydney every Easter anyway. And, and of course, in those days, Matt, it was run on the Easter Monday. So the Easter Carnival was a really really intense and marvellous carnival on Saturday and the Monday. Well, that's, fantastic. that's a little snippet of part of the interview. And I, I think what is so important about Joan Walker is she represents racing at its best for the best reasons. Uh, you know, the love of the, the love of the horse comes across the quest. You know, can we do this? It's not about data and speed maps and all the, all the boring stuff that's made it really kind of too scientific rather than for dreamers like Joan. Um, so, that was talking about the the scenario with Reckless as he as he was trying to win every city cup, and the other thing about Joan Walker is that she's a, a, a very last remaining link to something like Farlap via Tommy Woodcock, and uh, it's a bit like Bradman Dan, isn't it? It's a bit like knowing someone who knew Bradman. I did For know sure. my mate of mine, Mick Hedge, played golf with Don Bradman. Can you believe? Um, so these things light up your imagination, don't they? When you hear someone like Joan Walker talk about Tommy Woodcock, who spoke about Farlap, then you go. Wow, that's bizarre. It's like hearing about someone who knows Captain Cook. So anyway, um, there was a rug that Tommy Woodcock had that was far laps and it was never going to be bestowed on, a, on another horse because no horse was worthy. Then he had a little bit of a think about Reckless. Um, four de- decades later, you had Tommy training your horse Reckless. Can you just let us know why you chose Tommy as a trainer, how that evolved? And also, when you look at the trainers today that we have well, you, you would have seen the eras of Mark Cummings and the Friedmans and now Chris Waller, and I know I would have le- will have left uh, many of them out. Um, what differences do you see that Tommy brought to the training of the horses as compared to today? Because he was probably the saving grace, I think, in the hearts of Australians with the Farlap story. He was the one that made everyone think that Farlap was, although his life was hard, he was very well cared for by Tommy. Oh, he was absolutely Tommy's be-all and end-all of living when he had him and the the greatest thrill I think I got from Reckless in all the years that uh, you know we had him because I bred Reckless uh, with my mother's help mm. she couldn't believe I was going to do it <laughs> and uh, uh, the, to breed a horse like him and then during the end of his you know racing successes Tommy said to me he is the only horse that I will he still had a rug of phallaps and he said, he is the only horse I have ever had that I would put Salap's rug on, which he did. Yeah, great memories. I it's got, been a good rug to have stood to be reusable after. 50 I was years. at Mooney Valley one day, and Tom, uh, Tommy Woodcock was giving kids a ride, and they got me to sit on um, Reckless, but with Farlap's rug on. I wasn't the only one. I think Felgate might have been at one stage too. Um, but uh, that was that was amazing. There was a huge throng of people, and particularly kids got an opportunity to ride reckless around the stables at at Mooney Valley. In uh, it was a couple of weeks after the Melbourne Cup, for memory. But uh, that in itself was was extraordinary. He was an amazing racehorse. Well, one of the most 
tell, uh, remem- memorable images of Farlap was when Cappy Telford, uh, there was a photo of Harry Telford's son or grandson, you know, with his, you know, kids in those days had their waistcoats and things yeah. like that, the- sitting on Farlap, making Farlap look like a, uh, an elephant because uh, the kid was so small. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, she, uh, you know, for all the reasons we mentioned, uh, she's, a, she's a total uh, gem, Joan Walker. No doubt. Speaking of gems, we're fortunate in harness racing to have a number of them, and one of them is Alison Alford, wife of uh, Chris Alford, whom we're going to chat to a little bit later on in the show about his chances uh, tonight at at Melton. But they had a pretty quirky horse. The family loved him, Wobbly. It was the family that was pretty much had him from day dot, and um, he had a few funny quirks about him, Wobbly, and they had to put up with this throughout his racing career, um, and it was worth putting up with because he was a really good horse. And we had a chat to Alison back in June uh, once they decided to retire Wobbly. Wobbly uh, retired with 60, after 65 starts he won 24 races and another uh, 24 placings as well. Prize money of over $511,000 so he had to be pretty good and as a as a young horse in particular um, he was outstanding. He won everything five times, a group one winner, four of them at uh, as a two year old and he strung 12 consecutive wins together and at that early stage of his, uh, of his life, Alice, and it was only bit by bit that we were starting to see that, you know, we refer to the quirkiness, but you must have had your heart in your mouth every time the horse raced because once I got to see him for the first time or the second time or the third time, um, you'd be thinking he's not going to score up. He's just not going to score up. And it was more a shock that he did score up and then win and blow them away. But, you know, having seen him do it time and time again, you got to expect that he would score up. But if you'd never seen him before, you would swear he wouldn't. Yeah, I know. I always had com- I suppose I had so much confidence in Chris, and Chris just knows him, uh, especially as his career went on. Like, I think in the last six months, I think we had him nailed pretty well. Um, we knew, you know, we didn't want the clerks to grab him. He just needed someone to walk with him. It all had to be on his terms. For those early days, you know, I'd be near sick until the race was over because, um, you know, we'd get him onto the track and you'd think, you know, our job, mine and Josh's job, and it mix job, he's done. But, you know, Chris, would be, you'd watch him warm up and, you know, Melton one night he tried to run off the track mid-race and Chris said, you know, by another race at Melton, he was going to just, I think it was the Breeders' Crown final, he was just going to pull up to a dead halt up the straight. So, yeah, it wasn't until you ever got him off the track that you could actually breathe. Alison, what was it about Wobbly behind the scenes that made him... What were the things he used to do that um, would probably drive you crazy and give you that anxiety going into a race? And, and then I'm learning a little bit more about the gear of harness horses and what sort of things could you do with gear or less gear to try and help the situation? Well, yeah, like he's just his own um, his own person. Like he's, it's been... Um, you know, people have said that Chris had a challenge here. Chris... You could never fight with him. It was always his terms. Like, I, I do with a diary on a Sunday, and the, the whole week sort of revolved around what Wobbly needed. He always needed a horse on the track with him. But Chris would go out, and you'd say, you know, would have an out mind what you're going to do, and you'd look up at the track, and here's Wobbly and Chris just walking around the track. And you, Chris would come in, and I'd say, like, what happened? And Wobbly didn't want to do anything today. <laughs> so Wobbly didn't do anything today. And you just, you couldn't fight with him, because you'd never... Win. Like, I like to train intervals. Wobbly didn't like intervals, so he didn't do intervals. And um, we actually, at one point, Colin was getting quite stressed about his starting manners and got onto 
a, a horse, a natural horseman who came along. He, was, he came along and he was going to spend three days with him. Day one, he got here and he said, you've spoiled this horse. I've watched how you caught him. You've spoiled him. Okay, okay. He said, I'll fix him. Okay. So I three, spent three days with him. On the third day, he gave me the lead and said, good luck. I can't fix this horse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Colin, I knew Colin's, was Colin. Be answer, but I had to <laughs> <laughs> So even the horse whisperer gave up. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I we had a bit of a giggle because like, there's no way because it's all you know. And he's not a nasty horse; he's just quirky. Mm, well, he was really, really good right through his career, and he ran in so many Group One races. But just to remind everybody of how good he was, this is when he took out the Redwood Classic as a two-year-old. And it's been wobbly in front from virtually the start. And he's running time. He's breaking the clock. He's looking for the track record, Alfred. 29-6 down the back. He exploded away. Our Renesme can't chase anymore. She's hanging on for second, though. From Smash Them Calder battling on bravely. And then Regal Assassin, but it's all wobbly. He is a star. He's an absolute superstar, and he's racing away. He's going to smash them here. And it's a champion performance in the Redwood Classic from Wobbly. He scored easily by 25 to regular Sasson, third. Maybe and we're back live. You're listening to Cracking the, the Codes. We're reflecting on some of, uh, some of our great memories of 2022 and some of the great interviews. And um, sometimes the entertainment comes outside of the horse race. And Wobbly was a horse what that... About between, what about in ad breaks? Well, that, <laughs> that too. <laughs> but he'd be so entertained with the, the antics that he would put on as he attempted to leave the track. He'd need a clerk of the course, try and kick Chris out of the cart. He refused to score up uh, and and I enjoy that sort of stuff it just breaks it up and he was quite an identity uh, wobbly and uh, he, he's still alive but we were missing him from the racetrack this, it's funny Simone isn't it like some of them are, are kind of memorable because they've got an imperfection like Rough Habits Blaze, you know, that was just a scribbled on thing. We were talking, I was talking during the week to Greg Urell about Apache Cat, mm. here's a classic right and I didn't know this Apache Cat was sold uh, uh, to Hong Kong yeah, he was gone. He was off. He was, uh, the, but the Chinese buyer, you know how they're a little bit superstitious oh, yeah. over there. He looked at him and said, Oh, oh whoa. He said, Look at this paint face. He's yeah. dipped his head in a bucket of paint. It's, no, no, we can't have a horse that's got that much white on it. So six million dollars later, when he stayed home, um, rough habit, uh, lemon drop kid with his weird at racing action and things like that. I'm sure there's been, Roman-nosed greyhounds that were very distinctive and, and of so course, on. Simon told Helen, uh, very famous Roman mm. nose. He's no longer with us, Simon told Helen, but um, certainly gave many people a thrill when he was on the racetrack and no doubt wobbly as well. And um, he is in retirement. They're keeping him at the, their property, the Alfords, and um, they can see him every day and go out and give him carrots and all of that. But um, it's... I like hearing these stories of horses. Things are on their terms, and yeah. um, they get the job done, but it's on their terms. And it's good, too, that we, we particularly us, but anyone else, can refer to them outside just their racing record. doesn't matter if they're a greyhound or a horse, uh, a, a racing horse, but they've got qualities about them, uh, personal qualities, and, mm. and I, I really enjoy 
being involved in that and hearing those stories because they're not just a cartoon. They're not just something to bet on. They provide us in so many ways, so many shapes, so many forms. A, it's entertainment, sure, but B, we wouldn't be working without these characters. Uh, and I think it's a great way that we can highlight they've got a heart and they've got a brain and they're dearly loved. Well, because there's a bit of a, a tug of war in the way that they're presented. There's, there's, And I'm not knocking either section of the media, but there's a section of the media that's very, very uh, speed map science result where it fits in uh you know peak market price and all this sort of all these sort of things that make them unless you've provided the other narrative of what as well they come across as purely a commodity if if that's all there is i'm not just saying that these guys can't present it any different but if that's all there is and greyhounds are just the pink the black the the, the white the number that the harness horses if they off, they're often the same colour. 80% of them all look pretty much the same unless you can then dig a bit deeper yep. and find the wobblies of this world or the, uh, you know, the, the gun sins who wouldn't yeah. go out because he loved the crowd so much or I'm sure there's, you know, when we talk to the greyhound people, Simone, and they, you know, Cal Greeno would tell you stuff about, well, she's fast that would give her a, a much greater dimension than no nearly, doubt. well, she's fast being a two, as predicted, a $2.1 million right. earner. And I love it's learning ridiculous. about those sorts of things. Same. They're the, the things that are close to my heart. And I like to be personal with those horses. I like to know and understand them because they still inspire me within my work. And it's not just, as you said, a narrative of, of betting on them. These, these horses are living creatures and they have wonderful personalities and it's it's I really appreciate the opportunity of being able to be involved with that and uh, and share it amongst everyone. And just quickly that the showcasing on RSN recently with Dream Chasers and the Inter Dominion and other highlight uh, meetings with both sports did bring that across because it's it quite did. often it's actually you don't discover these things unless there's an, a platform provided to do it. And we learn so much more about the, not just the, the animals, but the, the human, the Lisa Delbridges, the, uh, the, the Cal Greenos, the, you know, with the, the discussions behind the boxes about, oh my God, I'm so nervous and what's this going to do for me and all that. Then you go, oh, I'll cheer you home then. So. Unless you get that sort of coverage, yeah. you do not um, make them multidimensional athletes. Absolutely right, Matt. And Dan, and um, one of our other interviews this year was Peter Giles, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame back in about August. And Peter's not in great health. He's been in hospital for about six weeks. So hopefully he can hear that he is one of our special guests or reflections on the show this morning. And we are a show that do provide that platform to get those extra stories as well. So let's take a listen now to Peter Giles after being inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame. Yes, Simone, we were. It was an absolute honour. As a matter of fact, I, uh, my mother kept uh, clippings from all the uh, races when she was alive, and I went back and I got hold of the books. And uh, it, it was amazing the number of races that we did win and how your mind forgets what's happened in the past. It's called getting older, Pete. Yes, that's right, Danny. Um, but, yes, we certainly had a, you know, we just had a very good run with the dogs. Um, we were very lucky to win an award like that. It's not a one-man job. We had uh, my family never stopped working. And... Uh, the people we had helping were all friends and uh, we're very grateful for what they did. Pete, um, 
you uh, you trained uh, some winners for me. It was the best greyhound I ever had. You trained for me, uh, but not just for me. There was a group of us. We had Rational Miss, and um, you know we've had a, a a really strong friendship since then. But also the connection you had with Arthur Cooper through uh, those early days, Rational Miss, and what uh, you and Arthur were able to achieve with uh, all the flood greyhounds. Yes, uh, we started off with Floodgate. And she was a wonderful producer. Um, yeah, many, many winners she had. And then one of her daughters, Flood Form, went on. Um, and we had a, a long-term period of time with Arthur. Um, and it was a very successful period. Peter, I'm always fascinated, and I... I asked this question a lot of uh, some of our older guests. Uh, do you think, how do you compare the greyhounds of today to the greyhounds of yesterday for durability, um, strength, class, speed, you know, the well she's fast versus some of the great flood greyhounds you had? Is, are they the same or are they different? Um, I guess we were fairly tough on the dogs. They worked very hard because we raced them fairly often. Um but I don't know. I guess the times are getting quicker all the time, so the dogs are still performing like they used to. Um, I haven't had very much to do with the dogs other than watch them on the TV over the last three or four years. Um, but I think the dogs were tougher in our day. Peter, you dominated in the 90s, uh, dominated the racing scene with sprinters and particularly stayers. Um, I think you went for every race interstate that you possibly could. You made some wonderful friends. They're always happy to put you up and, and have the dogs in kennels when you travelled as well. So like you mentioned before, it, it takes a village, doesn't it, to win an award like this? Oh, yes, look, we were very fortunate. Well, we used to receive a lot of interstate sales and uh, we didn't do anything different but uh, we just had a lot of runs with stayers and uh, I had a very good friend in Carolyn Jones who was with me for probably 30 or 40 years and uh, we used to chase all the big races wherever they were uh, we'd be off to and of course in all those states we had somewhere to stay, um, mainly other trainers, but, yeah, it was, we were very, very fortunate. Yeah, Peter trained some amazing greyhounds in his time, and like we heard, um, his association with Arthur Cooper, who is a race caller over in France. One of those big races that he did win was um, the Melbourne Cup, and I know Dan's told the story many times of Peter being up in the caller's box when Dan was calling for Channel 10, and Peter having to lend Dan's tie to go down to the presentation. Let's take a listen of City Blitz. Pete, um, you had some great dogs, and it's probably even hard to, to collectively come up with which was your best, but there was one moment, in a way, I shared with you that's got to be right up there, and that was the night, and we've talked about it before, the night that City Blitz won the, the Melbourne Cup because um, in the run it didn't look like he was going to get within Kui, and it was just this incredible jet-propelled finish to see him uh, win the race. You watched the, the race in the box with me, and you looked at me as they went over the line and I looked at you and you, you, you just couldn't believe it that he'd actually been able to get up. 
No, it was a wonderful feeling, and I can tell you it was very hard not to have a yell when they went over the line, but, uh, you know, it was a great run. Um, we didn't, I guess we didn't really expect him to, to do as well as he did because he'd come back from an injury, and... Uh, he was eligible for the Melbourne Cup, so it was one of the races we put him in. Well, let's take a listen to it, Peter. Racing near the outside, Moonabelle Prince, a little bit slow to begin away, very fast, best of going quickly, Huncho is, and then Railway Raiders, they go into the first corner now, and getting up on the inside to take the lead here, Huncho is, raced away five in front, Bahama in second going around the outside as Tenthill Doll then City Wits followed further back by Railway Road, Moonabelle Prince, along gap the best of Bevan, Rapid Harker, up to the corner, Huncho is the leader, two in front, Tenthill Doll's coming quickly, Tenthill Doll, the inside, Huncho is flying home, City Wits, City Wits has got a to win the cup, City Blitz first, Ted Eldale second, Huncho was third, a barnstorming run by the winner. You're listening to a special Reflections episode of Cracking the Codes. It's 18 minutes to 11. This is RSN, Cracking the Codes. Welcome back to Cracking the Codes. Lance Justice was a special guest. He has been on many occasions, but in August, uh, reflecting on his great horse, Love in a Chevy, who was uh, at about his 200th start. Love in a Chevy had an encounter with a snake, all but died. And it's actually a sad story. It produced a lot of tears for the two hosts that day, Simone and I, uh, but with a very positive ending. Well, this fellow loving a Chevy, you know, for most people, see him go around week in, week out. He's a bit of an opportunist as he's got older. He's taken some big scalps uh, over his career. He's won 30 races, over $386,000 in prize money. And while he's probably as fit and healthy as he's ever been, he's closer to the end of his career now. Not to say it's going to stop in the next week or so, but going back about six years, um, he... Um, the likelihood was he was going to die. It seemed like he was bitten by a snake, and uh, things weren't good. Yeah, we uh, he he was we found him and he was down and down and out and uh, and got him to the vet. Got two rang as many vets as I could to get the closest and fastest vet to us. And um, yeah, he uh, we looked at him and uh, the initial prognosis was put him down, um, but. I, uh, I think his head up and he was laying on his side and one eye was very puffed where he'd been laying on the ground and, and thrashing all night or all morning. And um, the other side was really bright and looked like he wanted to live. So I just took the punt and said, let's, let's have a crack. Let's, let's try and save him. There's some uh, um, footage that's been on social media. It's probably been around for a little while, but it resurfaced again in the lead-up to his 200th start last week and and this week. And, and look, I, I've probably got uh, turned into a softy as I've, I've got, got older, and, and so be it. But um, for, I, I think anyone would find it difficult to, to hold back tears in their emotions when they looked at some of the footage of what the horse had to go through, but also the love and the care and the efforts, the, the extreme efforts that yourself and Di and the team went through to to save him. Yeah, well, it was really, it was, it was one of those things, I look back on, on it now and I think everything was going against us. I mean, he, he was down and, you know, when you get a horse that just lays on the ground and can't move, other than having convulsions, you know they're in trouble. Um, we did stuff like, if you look at that thing, we put up, put air mattresses under him to get him up off the ground. 
we put a tarpaulin over the top of him to keep the first the rain off him and then the shade off him because it was it was, uh, it was in the summertime. It was about early January, and it was the weather was changing from heavy summer showers to um, 40 degrees in the sun, and he was laying out in the middle of a yard, so we had to give him protection. But yeah, and the people that that gathered and helped us with him because he had 24 hour round the clock pension. There was always someone with him. We had to roll him over every two hours to stop fluid building up on his lungs. And yeah, it was just a, a huge effort. And he, I think, he appreciates us. Uh, he appreciates the fact he's going around. He, he, we didn't never expect him to, to race again. We never expected him to have 10 starts, let alone 200 starts, or another. I think another 170 he had since he um, since he had his encounter with the, with the reptile. But look, he's just been a marvel. And you know, touching back what you said, he's taken some scalps. It was really, it was really. I looked at the Inter Dominion final when uh, Bronzel Benjamin yeah. uh, won the final, and then I looked at Chevy's last win was a few starts back, and he actually beat that horse in the yeah. race at Milton. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, he might be old and he might be, you know, to the end of his tether, but he can still beat the best of them on the right night with the right run. And he just amazes me every time he steps out and does it. Well, he won as recently as, as five starts ago, which is quite extraordinary. And he won at Milton. And this is the way that he did it. Love it, a Chevy. It's Jeremy Wells about a hit in front of Knights Templar. Yankee Gold looks to be going okay. Aussie uh, Playboy awaits the run and then Lovin' a Chevy as they turn. It's Jeremy Wells joined by Knights Templar. Yankee Gold to the outside. In the straight, Knights Templar poked its head in front. Yankee Gold runs on. Lovin' a Chevy gets going. Knights Templar in front. Yankee Gold Lovin' a Chevy. It's the old Chevy out wide swapping them and Chevy gets up. Lovin' a Chevy's done it. Lovin' a Chevy with Shannon O'Sullivan beat Yankee Gold and in third Third spot, Knights Templar from Jeremy Wells. And then came Joni in with... Well, Lance, those words over the line called by Dan, they're loving a Chevy. It must just be so satisfying for for you and the team at home. And look, when I watch that YouTube clip during the week, it's not even my horse. And I get choked up even thinking about it and talking about it now because I do have my own horses. And I've been through not snake bites, but some pretty awful situations. But... Tell us how you got him back on the track. How did you get the work into him to get him fit again, um, taking it easy, knowing when to do a little bit more, when to back off? But look, it must have been just such a difficult process. Well, firstly, when when he um, when he first got bitten, we, we never intended to race him again. We thought that it would be highly unlikely that he would live and that it was a big chance that he probably wouldn't race. He had he seemed to have um, neurological damage as he he would work and when we eventually got the horse up after about three or four weeks we got him to stand and he would just walk in a circle. And one day we thought oh, we'll let him just go out in a little front paddock out in front of his yard. Then he went ten yards, he saw another horse and tried to counter and he fell over. Oh, so so we, we we then had to go pick him up with the tractor, get him to his feet, walk him back to his yard. And I just thought then that, you know, probably the thought of him racing again is extremely unlikely. But in saying that, we we had him around the place and he was he got better and better. After um, 42 days, I had to pick him up every day with the tractor. And I said to him on the 42nd day, mate, if you don't start picking yourself up, we're going to have to seriously look at 
you can't go your whole life me picking you up with a tractor. So, and the very next day I come out, he got himself up. So it was, it was like a huge step. And and after that, what we decided to do, we, we decided we would just keep him around the place and he was around the paddock and he was really starting to look well and he was well. And I said to Jason Hackett at the time, I said, we'll put him in the cart and jog him a couple of laps just to see how he is. And we put him in and jogged him and he was, oh, you come back and Jason said, no, nah, perfect. So... I said, right, I will, well, every third or fourth day, we'll give him a bit of exercise and we'll just gradually see how he goes with it and build his muscles back up. And then we um, we built him up and got him to the stage where he was actually, we, we hobbled him and fast worked him and he was actually quite good. So we took him to the trials and we thought, we don't want to be getting anybody's way. We, we want to make sure that he's going to act, act the same at the trials he does on the track. So... We sent him out in the trial. Jason drove him. He sat last. He followed the field around, finished 300 metres behind him, but we didn't want to pass the horse because we wanted to make sure that he was safe and everything's going to be no hazard to anybody else. And uh, from there on in, the rest is history. He come out, come out and started uh, getting better and better. Lance Justice there. Um, it was a teary interview, and as uh, part of this interview is a great interview with Jackie Sims, who trained her first winner in August, a horse by the name of Amberlack. And it's extraordinary the lengths that people go to to include animals in their life, and conversely, what animals are able to do to help people with their lives. There was a lovely little yarn in the first race on the synthetic at Pakenham on Monday, and T.O. Nugent was the winning jockey, and he sort of gave a little hint about the yarn when he was talking about Jackie Sims, how proud he was to, to be the rider of Jackie Sims's first winner. And, uh, and then I thought, I'd better bring Jackie Sims and find out a bit more about this. And there's a lovely story here, and she's, uh, she's joining us on Cracking the Codes. How are you, Jackie? I'm really good, thank you, Matt. How are you? Good. You're with Simone and Dan as well? Hi, Simone. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jackie. Jackie. Don't bother too much with them. They're rascals. Uh, Matt's just going to do this interview by himself now. Um, What a thrill. I mean, uh, we're probably going to find out through the interview why it was such a thrill, but um, such a great accomplishment to, I mean, I know you're not, you're you're sort of on the, on the slightly wrong side of 50. So at that, this stage of your life with horses to have come up with your first winner, what, what an amazing feat. Yeah, look, firstly, it needs to be in context that, that it was a, a weekday win at Pakenham. We're not talking sort of Saturday win in the in town. But, yes, it really was just absolutely fabulous. And, it, yeah, I'm just so proud of Hank, which is Amberlack, um, because he just put in and he just kept putting in, regardless of who the trainer was, it was an epic run that he put in. So, yeah, no, it was just absolutely fabulous. And Tio just rode him beautifully. Um, he didn't get flustered when things weren't going right and, and just let Hank, he didn't hassle him and then brought him out when I asked him to. And, yeah, I'm, I'm just so incredibly thrilled for everyone involved in Hank. Um, yeah, it's just great. Well, you can be incredibly, incredibly thrilled again because here's, uh, here's the last 400 replay. 200 metres left to go from Bond of Trust who's had a hard run. Amberlack is starting to charge down the outside and Madame Mayhem is next. So Amberlack coming up to Steak Knives. Steak Knives, Amberlack and Madame Mayhem in the centre. Amberlack lifts late and Amberlack's come from a long way back to win. Amberlack, uh, in fact, from last has rocketed home to win and beat the Did Madame rock at home, didn't it? Knives. And cut down Steak Knives. <laughs> is there really a horse in that race oh, called Steak did. Knives, Jackie? <laughs> 
Because if you win the race, you should come home with steak knives because you win the race and get an extra set of steak knives. But that's not all. He sounds like a like a, a what was that overnight <laughs> show? Yeah. Demtel Direct. Yeah, Demtel. <laughs> that's right. That's right. With a free set of steak knives. Well, there was a horse during the week called a lovely brown horse. Yeah, I heard yeah. Matty call. It won. Could you it get won. any any more? Um, you know, matter of fact, than a lovely brown horse. And <laughs> Unfi Brun, which is French for the brown horse, the brown filly, oh, you know. So, yeah, sometimes there's a lot of thought. if it was a ranger. <laughs> well, we had uh, Ginger Nuts. We had, uh, no, what was the, the one? Oh, Steve. No, there was a couple of them. Um, the the ranger was called, but they didn't pronounce it as the ranger. Kiwi Horse, a good one a few years ago. Jackie, we can get sidetracked on this show. <laughs> <laughs> At least she's laughing. <laughs> In the thing of humour, that's fine. <laughs> hey, um, your story, uh, yep. we were talking uh, um, about Lang Lang uh, on the show, about the coursing, and I always see the sign to Lang Lang. I do also see a sign to Clonbanane on the way up yep. north, and that's uh, that's where you've uh, you've been in the last few years? Yeah, I've been here for uh, over 20 years now, and I was Northcote before sort of doing the country change. And, yeah, so Clombinane, you wouldn't know that it existed unless you knew someone here. It's sort of a locality. It's not really, um, like, there's no township or anything like that. And we sort of butt on to um, Mount Disappointment. So it's awesome. It's a really lovely spot of the world. And, Jackie, you had an equestrian background prior to training, which um, I love talking to people about their eventing and dressage days and all the rest of it. Did you have this burning passion that one day... You wanted to train a racehorse because I certainly no. don't, <laughs> but no, you didn't. I didn't even know who Winks was when I was <laughs> when I first started working in stables. I had no idea. Like I, my background is community development, so working in the not for profit, working in in local government. I've well, horse training's not for profit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, like in the disaster space. So after the 2009 bushfires, I worked community development in the Mitchell Shire um, and then went on and worked at the Flowerdale Community House, also up at Heathcote Community House, Whittlesea Community House. So that's sort of like my background and strategic planning and all of that sort of stuff. And I was just really exhausted. And I remember just so clearly, Mum said to me one time, we were sitting outside just having a drink, and she said, you need to just have a gap year. And it just was like that goes, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'll go and work in the racing stables. Like that's where it's all care, no responsibility. Um, So Barry Goodwin, I worked up with him up at Seymour, and he was just absolutely fantastic. But as soon as I started working in, it was like, I'm not leaving. (laughs) So then then got a job with Peter Morgan in Eden Park and, yeah, started the process of getting my licence. And, yeah, the rest is just, yeah, that's that's how I came around to it. But, yeah, just the Wink story, that was (laughs) one of the riders came in and he goes, it was a Saturday, and he goes, oh, you're watching the big one today? And I sort of like do the squint and the the shake of the head, the waff. And he goes, the race today. I go, what race? He goes, Winks. I go, who? (laughs) Well, you might train the next one and then you'll become familiar with the name. And sometimes we just don't know what we're going to get with a guest. But I do it more sort of like how I used to get my eventing horses. Fish is a lot of sort of interval training, a lot of hills, um, and then I only take them into the track to do fast work where you need that really consistent surface. 
Um, so, yeah, so then he he went in and saw the first prep, but he did really well, so then tipped him out and then... <laughs> And then another disaster. Um, my last October, my 21-year-old gorgeous, healthy daughter came down with a really random disease and she ended up in ICU and dying. So I can't talk any more about that because okay. I'll cry. Yeah. We will too. Um, I will too. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so that was unexpected. We didn't, yeah, didn't know yeah, that, no, Jackie. I, I can't go into that anymore because mm. I just can't go there. But just to, to give, um, give you guys. And then, so I was mental, like completely mental. And I said to Anita and Mrs. Fletcher, I said, I really understand if you want to take Hank and pop him somewhere else. I just totally understand. And without even, like, there was no thought. Both of them just came straight back at me and said, we don't care if he never gets to the races. If he makes you smile, that's his job in life. We do not care. So, and that makes me really emotional just to know that I have, people around me who who are just absolutely phenomenal so they they just trusted the way that I do horses and they know that Hank gets looked after and just loved beyond what any horse does so yeah so that's that's Hank and Hank goes out to adult riding and Hank does dressage and Hank does (laughs) Hank does cross-country training and yeah Hank sounds like another sub-zero I don't know. I don't know. Sub Zero, Sub Zero, Jackie was a grey horse that won a Melbourne Cup <laughs> before Wings. <laughs> uh, fabulous stories, and it, it, just great to reflect with our guests that you would have heard from this morning: Joan Walker, Alison Elford, Peter Giles, Lance Justice, and uh, Jackie Sims. Jackie on the back of training her first winner, Amberlack, in August. Uh, fabulous job, Simone for uh, producing today's show. Brought back some great memories in 2022. Oh, it certainly did. And, um, you know, that was a handful of guests out of probably 120 or 30. That was so the hard part, refining, was, wasn't it? Simone yeah. did an amazing job editing back all of that stuff. And Jackie was a good example. Not everyone's in the bubble. And, you know, she's in horse racing for her own reasons. The Winxes and Sub-Zeros happen around her and she's doing it for her own reasons. And yeah. we heard that story there. Good on you, Simone. That was uh, that was lovely stuff there. And uh, you will meet Joan Walker in the in coming weeks. I would love to meet you, Joan yeah. Walker. I really would love to. But I just want to say that um, someone like Jackie really epitomises what this show's about. And we're getting lots of positive feedback with the time slot being changed that more people are listening to Cracking the Codes. And we do have that platform to to provide those stories that people don't get a chance to hear about, about the horses, the greyhounds and the, the people. So it's what I love doing every Saturday morning. Um, love sitting beside you guys and bringing all these stories to life. Terrific. Good on you. Well done, Dan. Um, good luck tonight with uh, the 12 group ones. Uh, what a night tonight. Yeah, it will be indeed. And happy, happy New, New Year. Year. Big show yeah. coming up today as we set the scene for the big uh, day of gallops uh, today. The Valley, Brisbane, Sydney, lots coming up, lots of guests as well. It's three minutes past 11. 